Hey folks, Ed Williams here. As you know, I'm absolutely passionate about the business of aesthetic medicine as well as mentoring those who are serious about getting to the next level in business and in life. In my podcast series, I share, share so many lessons I've learned as an entrepreneur, small business owner, and I've also written a book called The White Code Entrepreneur, where I tell all, and it, it is essentially relevant to any professional, not just surgeons, anyone trying to be successful or get to the next level. So check out my website at dredwinwilliams.com. Hey, today's topic is Dr. Ziad Katrib. Now, Dr. Katrib He's at the University of Louisville. He's been there for just over three years. He was my former fellow who's had incredible success. The topic is how I crushed it in just five years, in less than five years from finishing my fellowship. He's just finished his third year. Um, he is now booked out eight, nine months. He's getting revision rhinoplasties from all over the place and has basically built this. He's going to kind of tell all how he did what he did to get his practice off the ground and become successful in such a short period of time. So I hope you enjoy this podcast, and I'm going to introduce Dr. Katrib here in just a moment. And uh, naturally, I'm very, very proud of him, uh, having uh, had the opportunity to work with him for a year as my fellow. So right now, folks, I've got uh, Ziad, Dr. Ziad Katrib, and uh, Ziad was my um, fellow. He is now at the University of Louisville in Kentucky. Uh, he's an assistant professor there. and I wanted to talk. He's been out. When Ziad? When did you? When did you finish your fellowship? Was it five years ago? No, uh, coming up on four. Coming um, up on four. Or right about four, right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted. I wanted. To, wanted to to bring you on because uh, a lot of people are trying to figure out how to start and start their career. You've had incredible success. I mean, I knew you're going to do well when you were a fellow, um, and um, you know you're shooting the lights out. So I first of all I want you know how's how's Marcy and Nora and Emily, uh, Amelia doing? Good, very good. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. Uh, uh, girls are good. I'm trying to see them as much as I can at this point in my uh, my, my career. So and then yeah, Marcy's great. She's uh, working three three days a week now, part time in pediatrics. So she gets to see the kids more, which is great. Yeah. So she's working three days. So between the, yeah, between yeah, the two of you off, guys, um, and you work ten days a week, right? Exactly. Yeah, we've created extra days in the week for me to do cases. Uh-huh. I, my, uh, you know, my my team is like, I think Dr. Katree works on Sundays too. I said he probably does now and then. We unfortunately do. Yes, yeah, Monday through Saturday in the OR, literally, uh, and then sometimes Sunday if a problem comes in that needs my assistance. So, uh, so it's quite busy to say the least. Yeah. So, for those who who don't you know who don't know you. Um, and they're, you know, where, you know, what's, what's your average week like? I mean, you, you know, what, yeah. how do you, cause I, I know you're working a lot now. So what's your average week yeah. like? Yeah, it's basically, uh, I, I have a pretty good gig at a, it's actually a private hospital. I don't actually operate really at my university hospital. Ironically, uh, I work at a bigger hospital that's across the street, um, for outpatient stuff. So basically I have block time there all day Mondays every Tuesday morning, all day Wednesday, some Thursday mornings, and then every Friday. Uh, and then they basically let me do what I need to on the weekend. So so basically I have two half days of clinic, and the rest of the time it is OR now. I'm kind of transitioning now. I'm starting to get a lot more um, um, con- you know, revision consoles for rhinoplasty, uh, which is starting to um, really kind of dominate the practice. So I'm going to start doing some uh, some more Tuesday and Thursday clinic to kind of see those consoles. So basically it's essentially uh three to three and a half days in the OR plus or minus the weekend work that I do. Yeah. It's, 
and so then it's, it's pretty busy. It it sounds pretty busy. So, um, yeah. how's you know do you do you have residents with you or you know? Yeah, I do. It's a pretty good setup. It's uh, have we have we switched to um, we basically switched to three residents a year recently in the past two years. So we're we've increased our complement from two to three a year. So it's really nice. We have um, pretty good coverage, and then actually. Uh, the plastic surgery fellows have started informally rotating with me. Let's say it's not part of their formal rotation here at U of L. Uh, there's been some, you know, some turf wars in the past as there is in most places, but um, I'm kind of win- winning their department over and I'm the only person in town who's doing, you know, these types of open complicated rhinoplasties. Uh, so I think they, they're starting to kind of catch on. And so they just basically show up randomly. So I at least have one ENT resident with me and then um, plus or minus the plastic surgery fellow with me as well. Got in it. these cases that's interesting yeah. you know just in three years you've been able to um kind of win 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 them over as you know the politics are pretty yeah. thick uh and especially oh, yeah. especially, especially here, in yeah. that program right yeah uh, yeah this place is territorial yeah um so if you were to you know give advice to i mean you cho- chose to um join the university what what was part? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what's the what was part of the decision making there? And, and do you, obviously yeah. you you feel like it's working out? Yeah, yeah. So I, I did my residency at U of L. Um, so I did my ENT residency there, uh, and then I headed to your excellent fellowship uh, in sixteen seventeen. So when I um, was graduating, I think the department had a you know pretty good um, feeling that I was going to probably want to come back to Louisville. Uh, my wife, we met here. We love this town. So uh, Dr. Bumpus, who tons of credit. Uh, my success goes to Dr. Bumpus. I mean, he's our chairman. Uh, Jeff Bumpus has had my back the whole way uh, and really has helped me pave an uncharted path in this city. There's never been a facial plastic surgeon in Louisville, actually. That's that's just done facial plastic surgery. Uh, so um, he very much um, helped me kind of fight that battle, and it was a pretty tough battle to come back and do that. Uh, but he, he offered me a contract when I graduated from residency, actually, to come back. So, um, so I, I knew it was a solid program. Uh, I knew that it was very head, neck and trauma heavy, uh, and, and no plastic surgery really at all. Um, and I knew that a lot of people in town were not really doing, um, uh, you know, these types of operations that I'm doing now. So it was an untapped market, if you will. So, you know, the, the timing was right. I like the idea of academics, especially early on being able to teach. I worked at the VA for a year, actually every Friday, and I just do open, uh, rhinoplasty for, uh, literally every Friday for a year, uh, which was an excellent experience. Uh, I still do surgery on VA patients now. They just feed them out to me in my practice. But, uh, but yeah, so basically it was kind of a win-win situation as far as being able to teach. It was nice to know that I was going to have a guaranteed salary and not have to take out a you know, $2 million loan or whatever to start a private practice. And then I really, I knew I was going to be very surgically focused, not as much in office stuff. Uh, and so for me, academics is perfect for that because, you know, it's just the, there's a just a bountiful amount of pathology coming in every minute of the day, uh, more than we can handle. So uh, it was um, it was definitely uh, ripe for uh, picking, if you will. So so yeah, it, the timing worked out perfectly um, to come back and, and you know be the first one that we've ever had in our department. Uh, and so our residents now are I mean we have third year residents who have over 100 rhinoplasties logged. Uh, I graduated with eight rhinoplasties after five years. So um, our department now is getting a pretty heavy exposure and facial plastic surgery, which is just great for the residents. Yeah, it's great. I mean, one of the things that I always used to encourage, uh, was, you know, not to get so chase the injectables because as a surgeon, you know, that's easy stuff to do. Uh, Mm -hmm. you get, get your, you know, get a lot of surgery under your belt so that you 
you know, you, you get your comfort level and skills and then you can go from there. Yeah. It sounds like you're, yeah. you, you know, you're doing I took your advice, uh, uh, maybe a little too well. <laughs> I remember you telling me that and, uh, I agree completely. I, I was born to operate. And, uh, so you were speaking using to my ears when you told me that. And, uh, yeah, I don't really do any office stuff actually, to be honest. Um, my practice got pretty specialized pretty quickly, actually for better or worse, even surgically got very specialized. Uh, but I don't really do any Botox. I don't really do any filler. I don't have any um, non-surgical devices. Uh, being an academic, I don't really have that stuff. Uh, I do a little aging face, really not much. Uh, so my practice essentially now is only rhinoplasty, uh, nasal reconstruction, and trauma. That's it. I don't do really anything else at all now. Do you do much other soft tissue work, like skin cancer, facial nerves? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. When I nasal reconstruction being, um, yeah, the skin cancer stuff. And it's not just nose and something else. Just, I guess, facial reconstruction, we could technically say. So uh, tons and tons of most cases. I do probably um, half a dozen most surgeries a week. And those are frequently my late night slash weekend cases because, of course, you know, the dermatologist texts you at 5 p.m. on Thursday after they've done a rhinectomy accidentally on somebody and um, needs the reconstruction. So... Uh, you know, those cases are obviously uh, not usually scheduled, but, uh, but yeah, I, I love doing the, the soft tissue and bony reconstruction, all of it, uh, and still do a good a good bit of it. But the rhinoplasty is really starting to become even more dominant over that right now. So how did you get, how did you kind of get your nose under the tent, if you will, and, and the soft tissue and skin cancer? So when I came back, because uh, that was also kind of a territorial market, there's four or five older plastic surgeons who had a pretty good hold on that. Um, that area so what i did when i came back i had time on my hands i was you know just starting an academic practice uh, i actually drove around to all the most surgeons uh and i would watch them do most surgery uh the ones that were local here in louisville and just kind of got to know them i already knew some of them because i trained here so they at least had some familiarity with them and then i actually sat down and got out my computer and looked up every most surgeon in the state of kentucky and hand wrote letters to all of them with my cards and cell phone number uh, and told them, you know, if you ever have, if you're ever in a pinch and you need help, here's my cell phone, text me a picture and I'll get, I'll get the patient taken care of. Uh, I sent 36 of those letters out and, uh, that probably led to 10, 10 or 12 most surgeons that are, I mean, these guys are three, four hours away that send me anything that needs anything more than a local flap. Uh, and then in, in Louisville, um, I mean, essentially anybody who needs uh, forehead flap reconstruction, they all end up in my office now. Uh, so we we got that market um, pretty quickly. And another thing I do, by the way, is I have all these guys' cell phone numbers. Uh, so I send, I take step-by-step pictures of every surgery I do, and I've done that since I started. I send them step-by-step pictures of here's how we fix your patient's defect, and here's their studio picture every time they come to my office. They so get a text, a text with a picture of how the patient's doing. So I think they really appreciate how serious we take it. Yeah, no, and you know there's no shortcut for the hard work. Um, you know, yeah. a lot of people – you know, I I think I told you this when, you know, when I first started, you you almost feel dirty doing it, right? You, you know, just going yeah. out and meeting all these people. But the, the reality is they, if you can help them and yep. all you need to do is get one person that you can help. And then they maybe, you know, maybe not everyone's going to give you a shot, but then you'll get one here and you'll get one here. And the next thing you know, they, you've built a, built a traffic flow mm-hmm. to your place. Um, yep. How do you, you know, how do you handle those because there's a lot of work involved right i mean between medical clearance and all that i mean the university you the team you have is pretty good about accommodating those yeah yeah we it's um and i I, i'm basically doing all these at uh it's called norton hospital so it's a 
a private, it's basically a private hospital, but it's a huge hospital. They do lung transplants, all this kind of stuff. Uh, they're definitely, um, I used to do a lot at the university. They, they're, they were a little bit more problematic as far as, uh, those types of issues, as far as getting patients on the actual OR schedule. I didn't feel like they were very motivated. Uh, this private hospital, I've kind of gotten to know, I mean, really from the CEO down to the OR manager to every pre-op and, and PACU nurse. So we, we were able to add on cases pretty, um, pretty last minute. Honestly, COVID for all of us has obviously thrown a wrench in some of that. Right. Uh, but now they're doing, I mean, rapid COVID tests on these people. Uh, and they are, the anesthesiologists are actually people that I trained with, the, the heads of the anesthesia department. So, you know, if someone is critically, if they're, if they're truly concerned about someone's health, they'll still shut it down or we'll do it on our local. But uh, it's, they're, they're extremely effective and efficient at getting um, cases done. That's where you can tell that they're very motivated to get cases done, which we like as surgeons. So, yeah. so it's actually it works out very well. So um, you're not, you're not the VA any longer. It probably doesn't. No, make I'm not. Yeah, I had to. I basically had to leave the VA, and I left right before COVID, like two weeks before COVID, kind of became a thing that we talked about. Uh, I, I put in my resignation to the VA, but essentially that one whole day a week was becoming a huge problem because I had not enough time. My practice was starting to grow outside the VA, uh, so I left the VA, which. You know, the, the saddest part was obviously not seeing the patients anymore because that was the best part of it. But the, really the nice thing that kind of occurred and wasn't, it wasn't planned was it turns out there's nobody else in this town who does, you know, rib, nose, re, you know, fifth revision, rhinoplasty. Uh, so my residents still go to the VA, of course. So they basically just feed all these noses out. Uh, and the head of the VA surgical department is a vascular surgeon that I know well. And she approves them because she knows that there's nobody in town who's going to, you know, take care of these patients. Uh, so I get to basically do the VA patients' noses now, but I get to do them in my own hospital, on my own territory, with my own equipment, and I can take pictures, which you can't do with the VA, of course. So, right. uh, and I and I can do as many cases a day as I need to. The VA obviously was very limiting as far as your ability to operate late. So it's kind of it wasn't planned, but it kind of turned out to be an even better situation by leaving. Um, so I still get to take care of the patients, but on my own, on my own terms. Mm. What's your, I mean, so what's like on a day-to-day basis now, what's probably your biggest challenge? Uh, I'm starting to, I've, whether it was purposeful or not, or not, I'm not sure yet. I'll get back to you, but I've developed a very um, busy revision practice in rhinoplasty. Uh, it's kind of one of those things where, you know, if you do good work, the revision community, as you know, is very, they all talk to each other. They're very in touch with each other. Uh, there's lots of communities and forums and groups on Facebook. And so, you know, you start doing some of those cases and getting good results. And some of those are, you know, eight hour, nine hour. I'm doing, I did one yesterday that was eight hours from Los Angeles. I have one tomorrow, uh, from Florida. That's probably going to be nine hours, uh, and, you know, you show some good pictures, show patients that you get good results, and then the patients, you know, just take good care of the patients, obviously, number one. Uh, so now the biggest challenge from a day-to-day uh, situation is basically tackling these absolutely devastated, crippled doses. Uh, it was just just one of those things. The more you do, the more you get, you know what I mean? So that's that's become the new top of the mountain for me. Yeah. And they're, those patients are tough. They're tough. Yeah, they are. I mean, they're... Um, you know, I've I've had good um, I've had good relations with all, but I haven't had anyone really uh, burn me yet. I'm going to, I'm sure. But I do. You know, you taught me a, a lot about uh, managing expectations. To be honest, uh, I have no problems with that in my practice. I am. I mean, I have an entire packet I give those patients talking about 
how imperfect their surgery is going to be. The fact that they're probably going to need touch-ups down the road. I mean, it's a pretty blunt in-your-face packet. Uh, and patients really respond well to that. I mean, uh, they really understand that you're telling them the truth and not selling them, you know, rainbows and butterflies, but what's really going to happen. So manage expectations, learn from the best, and I manage them like crazy. Uh, so I haven't had a ton of heartache yet, but obviously I'm a baby in this practice. Uh, you know, I got many years to go, and I'm sure I'm going to have some rough, some rough cases. But mm. uh, so far from a patient management standpoint, I haven't had too many issues there. So what has been probably, what, if you were to say, the single best thing you did to grow that practice? What, you know, because young people uh, out there are trying to say, how the hell do I get patients yeah. in the door? Yeah. Yeah. Instagram. That's it. Instagram. Uh, I built my entire practice on Instagram. Uh, there's not even a, there's, there's not even a con, there's, there's nothing else that even came close. I don't really get any patients from my university position except for trauma, inpatient trauma. You know, if someone gets shot in the face and they're admitted, uh, that's going to become my patient by default. The skin cancer, uh, these dermatologists all follow me on Instagram now, so I get some people from Nashville now and these other places. Uh, but the rhinoplasty specifically is a very Instagram-heavy market. So people who are looking for aging face surgery, maybe they may look a little bit on Instagram, but they're not like the rhinoplasty patients. The rhinoplasty patients are a younger population. They're very um, in tune and talk to each other. They do a lot of more research, in my opinion, than aging face patients. Well, because uh, they've been the they've thing, been they've been burned. I mean, if you will, whatever yeah, you want to call it, they've been let down. Yeah. You know, they feel like they've been yeah, let yeah, down. Exactly, exactly. So I mean, but even the the primaries, I think rhinoplasty is just such a visual operation. You know, if you if you post a before and after a facelift, it's it's cool and it looks good, but the rhinoplasty is just. It's such a heavy visual thing. Instagram is almost designed for it where you can kind of just flip through the different angles and say, okay, here's what he did with his nose. Uh, so even from a primary standpoint, I mean, I'm getting primaries from uh, all, everywhere. I mean, literally. Uh, and it's because um, of Instagram. So it's one of those things where in the beginning you have no portfolio. So it's hard to get patients because they'll say, well, show me your work, you know, and you're like, well, I don't have any work. So I would, even in insurance cases, uh, I would say, hey, can I take your hump down and make your tip, you know, you have to talk to the patient obviously about it. Uh, and so even under, you know, insurance insurance cases, I would do some cosmetic work and, and ask permission for, you know, um, standardized photography and start posting that. And that would lead to more patients, which leads to more patients. Uh, so everything is kind of the snowball effect where the more you get, the more you can show and the more you can show, the more you get. Uh, so it, if, there, if there was no Instagram, I mean, if Instagram wasn't there, my practice wouldn't be where it is at all right now. My website is not where it's coming from. It's all from social media. It's not Facebook. It's not Twitter. It's Instagram completely. Which is, which is fascinating because if you think about it, this didn't even exist, what, six, seven, not eight Not long years ago. ago. Right? Yeah, not long ago. Not yeah, it's, long pretty, ago. It's, it's a pretty new thing. Uh, and I mean, it's... 23,000 followers now on Instagram. I mean, uh, it's, it's, um, it's just one of those, uh, again, it just kind of snowballs because just the more you get, the more people see your work. So it's, it's a, it is a crazy thing. I mean, I can't imagine building a practice without it. Honestly, we're, we're very lucky that we have this ability to kind of show our work off to the world in five seconds. Yeah. Yeah. I got it. Um, what, um, so the future, what do you think about where, you know, how do you see your, how do you see your practice evolving? Um, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. We're at, it's funny cause I just got back from clinic recently. Uh, we were there late. We're always there late on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, and it's the same conversation. I have two medical assistants now and a patient care coordinator. It's always the same discussion at night is how we're going to slow down. Uh, I mean, my, my patient care coordinator literally told me tonight that she thinks we should shut our practice down for a month and not accept any new patients for a month. Uh, 
so we're kind of getting to this um, fork in the road in my practice where I'm booking rhinoplasties nine, ten months out right now, and people there is a certain point when people are going to say, okay, I'm not going to wait that long for a rhinoplasty. Uh, so I'm having to kind of, and it's starting to get a little bit, um, it's starting to become a bigger problem with the non-rhinoplasty cases that I get, which are essentially non-elective surgeries. I mean, it's trauma and skin cancer reconstruction. So I'm, I'm getting to the point where I maybe need to make an official decision about whether I should just switch to becoming only a rhinoplasty surgeon uh, or continue to try to balance my reconstruction work with rhinoplasty and just book noses out really, really far. Yeah. It's, so it, that's it's, where we're at now. Yeah. And that's, and that's a difficult, that's a difficult decision because you never know, you know, when's the next, I've been through a few recessions, right? So all of a sudden you're like, okay, when's a recession sure, coming? Yeah. You know, that kind of thing you hate to yep. turn away. But by the same token, when you look at the, the level of difficulty, the, uh, you know, remuneration, all that, it's, it's it's pennies on a dollar, you know, compared to what you're getting for a revision rhinoplasty compared to the reconstructive stuff. And the reconstructive stuff takes a lot of work and time. Yeah, no, it definitely does. I mean, honestly, the the, the biggest problem I see is just that I, I don't. There's not anyone else I really can tell them to to go to, which I, it kind of maybe sounds a little arrogant, I guess. But the 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 work that was being done on these patients was so substandard. Uh, there's also almost just a, an ethical humanity part of it where it's just, you know, can I let someone else do the world's worst forehead flap on somebody and just completely, you know, make them look horrible. Uh, and then the trauma, same thing. And then you're really not, there's no one else really in my department that does higher level trauma. So, you know, we have, we have a person who's tra- doing a fellowship right now. That's from Louisville. That's, uh, she's planning on coming back next year to join our practice. Well, that'd be good, uh, right? It'd be good, but she wants to do kind of part-time and she wants to do some general ENT as well, which is fine. That's, that's totally fine. You know, if she wants to do that, it may actually be ideal because maybe she can help with some of the recon and stuff like that. Uh, so, you know, I'm kind of looking forward to maybe having some, some help there to be able to deal with this um, reconstructive stuff. Uh, but yeah, and I, I do really enjoy the recon. I mean, I, I, I love, I mean, I do literally three to six, four flaps a week right now in my practice. Uh, and I really, it's, I just, I, I love it. The residents love it. It's fun to do. Uh, but yeah, it's a lot of work and it definitely is multiple, all multiple stages, obviously. So it just, it just takes a lot of OR time. So it's, it's a challenge to get them on my schedule. Yeah. So for someone starting out in practice, what, what advice would you give them? Starting out in academic say, practice? Well, you know, some, someone's starting out, they're, they're finishing a fellowship. They, you know, you yeah, made, you yeah. made it, you made it look easy in, in the last few years, but there are well, I a lot, lot of, help. Yeah. there I are a lot of people me. that, you know, have, yeah. uh, yeah, it's it's not that easy. Yeah, I mean, this is this is my opinion on it. This is very subjective, very opinionated, um, and some you know, a lot of this comes from you as well. But I, I, to me, as you stated earlier, people who are chasing this, you know, non-surgical stuff, um, you know, stuff that's maybe quick, easy, you can make some cash on it. I just, I think they're, they're chasing the wrong thing. I think it's really going to hurt them in the long run. There's kind of just like with language, a critical period, I feel like with surgery and in the, you don't really even start learning how to do this stuff until right after fellowship. I mean, fellowship, you know, you're there, but until you start doing it yourself and studying your own cases, you haven't done anything yet. So to me, if you come out of a fellowship and you go right into doing non-surgical stuff, I mean, you are, you're a baby who's never learned to learn how to speak. I mean, uh, you gotta get your hands in the OR as much as possible. 
I found that, and I think in general, academics is a very effective way to do that because you're kind of just, I mean, I had people six months before I got to Kentucky on a wait list, and my residents were keeping a list of people that needed my surgeries before I even got there. So, I mean, you can pretty much out the gate have a whole OR schedule booked up in an academic practice. Uh, if you're So for academics, I mean, and I think another key thing, and again, this is a little bit subjective, but uh, not doing ENT. Uh, I, I have done not a single ENT procedure in five years, uh, six years, actually. Uh, you know, I take call in the department, obviously, so sometimes I have to come in and a resident can, you know, bipolar or tonsil bleed while I'm sitting in the corner of the room. Uh, so, you know, there's the call thing. We get some surgical airways occasionally or whatever, but but I don't do any and never have done any ENT since the day I graduated from University of Louisville in 2016. So I think that you don't want to, you know, water yourself out. It's a little bit hard to uh, to go out into a community and do tonsils and tubes and sinus surgery and then bill yourself as a facial plastic surgeon. It really puts you at a big disadvantage. So when I came back, all the general, you know, the older plastic surgeons would say, oh, he's not, you know, he's doing ENT. And then eventually they stopped saying it because I never did a single ENT procedure. So they really couldn't say it anymore. And now they send me all the rhinoplasties that are, um, that need complicated work. So, um, so I think you really, if you want to do this stuff, you got really, really committed to the specialty. I mean, I, I, I can't, agree more i mean i you know that was always my feeling early on once you get labeled you get labeled um exactly and it is it really I, what i've learned and i've seen that people that just uh, really try to get out get private practice get it going and they um you know they they need to get a revenue stream going and they don't want to work to er's and they don't want to do the academic thing um you know so they start to push the injectable thing and uh, you start to lose confidence uh, i um yeah. you know I can slow down. I don't need to work as hard as I used to, but I'm, I'm very confident in what I'm doing. I'm not afraid to do things, but that's because of, of had, as I used to tell you guys, getting, getting up to your elbows and blood and guts for a few years um, and really feeling comfortable doing pretty much anything. Uh, it's easy. And you know, when you step away from something for a period of time, you definitely do lose, start to lose your, uh, lose your edge a, a little bit. Um, so I think that's you know, good advice. So someone, um, so obviously for you, uh, a university situation starting, just going out and joining universities um, worked out well. It sounds, I mean, obviously you're doing spectacularly well. Were there certain uh, things that you think are, because it doesn't always work that way for, for people joining university yeah. practice. What were the, were the, the, the things that worked? Yeah. Uh, the, 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 key, the key things that made it work. Yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you probably one of the so the, having a good chairman. I mean, having someone who understands because and I've only been at one academic practice, so everything I'm telling you is just from talking to my buddies who do it in other places and have struggles. And you've heard you've heard you those, gotta, right? You've heard those stories. Oh, tons. I mean, tons. I hear it all the time. I still I still get people that message me on Instagram and say, "Hey, you know, I'm in at this department, whatever. And, you know, how, how how are you doing? What are you doing? How are you able to have even have an Instagram? And actually, that's something common. You know, we can talk about that." Because I shouldn't have an Instagram. You know, I'm not supposed to have an Instagram. I'm in an academic position. Uh, I well, have a that's an interesting topic we'll talk about in a second. But yeah, yeah go ahead. So, so, but, but it all comes back to, and again, Jeff Bumpus. If you don't know Jeff Bumpus, the listeners out there, I mean, he's just a great guy. He's head and neck trained from Pittsburgh by Gene Myers. Uh, he's been at the chairman of our department. He actually, another thing I didn't mention was we were a division of surgery uh, when I was a resident. So the chairman of the surgery of the plastic surgery department would have never in a million years let them hire me. 
never. He would say, what are you talking about? That's not, he's not a real classical. He's a, you know, he's an ENT. We're not going to hire him. So Jeff Bumpus, after years of fighting for this, the year I graduated, got our, we broke off and became our own department. So that gave us a massive autonomy to, to basically run our own show. So it was perfect, perfect timing because he said, okay, because he always understood, you know, this is a specialty that needs to be in our practice and needs to be in Kentucky. So he really kind of spearheaded that immediately. I was the first hire to date, actually, when we, came, when we broke off and became our department. So that's the first thing is having a chairman who understands that you're not, you know, because I feel like there's a lot of chairmen that probably would say, oh, you're just being kind of, you're trying to be dramatic or, or difficult because, you know, if you go to somebody when you join ENT department and say, hey, listen, I'm not going to do any ENT, <laughs> I feel like that probably doesn't go over as well as it did with my practice, uh, you know, very often. I think there's a lot of chairmen who would say, well, you're going to do some ENT, you can do facial plastics if you want on the side or whatever. Uh, and that just, to me, again, you're shooting yourself in the foot before you even start the race. So uh, you got to have someone who understands that this requires you to do facial plastic surgery and nothing but facial plastic surgery aside from call. Again, I'm not going to say, oh, I'm not going to take call. And I'll I did the same. I, I did the to. same. Yeah, I did the same thing. I mean, I, I, I took the call. I wouldn't do any ENT cases. I wouldn't do a head exactly. neck. You know, I get a yep. call like, oh, can we get throw this neck on at the VA or sign this case with a rhinoplasty? I'm like, no, I'm not doing yep. that. But yeah. you, yes, you I mean, taking... having, having someone to understand, I mean, you got they got to get it though. I think there's probably a lot of um, you know people who aren't in this specialty that are other specialized uh, ENTs. I, I I don't know that they really understand how important it is to not be labeled as an ENT because uh, to them, you know, an an otologist is fine being called an ENT. You know, it doesn't affect their practice. I mean, same they are ENT. Same as a pedi- pediatric otolaryngologist. Yeah, right? same with the ped. Same thing with the head and neck guys. I mean, really, facial plastic surgery. The, the, it's such a different market. It's a different, you know, there's so much territorial BS that happens. So it's, it's really, you have to have somebody who gets it. And I did from the beginning. Uh, and that's what also, you know, led to the ability to have the things that I have, which, you know, I'm getting these rhinoplasties from all over the place. None of them know I'm in academics. I mean, they have no idea. Right. I don't lie. I don't lie about it. It's on the first I just don't flaunt it. So right. I don't say, you know, oh, I'm a UofL assistant professor. If you look at my Instagram, nowhere is yeah, UofL mentioned. If you look at my website, nowhere is UofL mentioned. Uh, I am on UofL's website, but nobody sees that because I have, you know, I have all the other pages that come up when you search my name that are nothing to do with them. So, uh, you know, we kind of, um, when I was a fellow in in, Alb- in, in Albany, I, I bought a phone number in Kentucky that was, uh, the last four digits were nose. I bought a domain, uh, Kentucky Rhinoplasty and ZK Facial Plastics. So I bought both those domains, which I own those websites. Uh, that was in my first half of first couple months up in uh, New York. Uh, and I knew I was going to use those someday. So basically I came back and I, Dr. Bumpus went to bat for me because nobody had ever had their own website in the entire University of Global System. Nobody has their own private Instagram, the entire UofL system, as far as like a, you know, a surgeon uh, or really any physician um, related to their practice. Uh, so it took a lot of, um, you know, back and forth and kind of negotiation, arguing and whatever. Uh, but again, Dr. Bumpus went to bat on that one um, and basically got it set up. So, you know, I, I still don't put anything on there that has a UofL logo nor what I do it anyway. But <clears throat> we have to be a little careful how we do it. And then, of course... We have explicit permission documented from all patients for all pictures, obviously. So, you know, we still follow, <clears throat> follow the rules, but but everything, again, comes back to if, if, I, if I had a chairman who said, oh, no, you can do some general ENT, I just wouldn't be here. I'd be in private practice completely. Yeah, yeah and, and because and obviously it wouldn't have worked, right? 
No, no way. Never in my life. I mean, I, I would have, when I, when I was leaving UofL, uh, I had two plastic surgeons in town tell me, you can't come back here and do facial plastic surgery. They said, there's been eight people that have come back and tried to do this, and all of them are gone now. Yeah. Because uh, they had such a stronghold on this town for 35 years. These guys have been here. I mean, there's a group of probably a dozen of them that have been here for three decades, and they have shut everybody down. They said, oh, he's just an ENT. He does tubes and tonsils. Uh, so they, you know, I, when I left and heard them say that to me, you know, that was my commitment. Okay. I'm going to come back and do this and I'm not going to become the ENT who does a little bit of facial plastic surgery. Uh, and it took, you know, a year or two, but again, uh, aside from one of them, uh, these guys text me every week and send me, they send me referrals for people who need open rhinoplasty. None of them do open. They all do close. So some of these people need their entire septum replaced, uh, or it's a fourth, fifth revision or whatever. Uh, so you know, that again, it took me a couple of years, but eventually nobody says that anymore because nobody has ever seen me do any of that stuff here. Uh, so, so you just gotta, you know, in the beginning it's rough, but you gotta, you gotta, again, you gotta commit to this specialty. You can't be half in, half out, even though you'll make more money doing general ENT in the beginning. You know well, I, I think mean? that's the fool's goal. That's the fool's gold. And, you know, actually my, my current fellow is, um, looking to go back to university. Actually, he's got a very similar situation to what you have there. And she's, she's spectacular. And, uh, to, um, back to Minnesota, and but she's got this massive private practice uh, ENT group in town. There's like 13, 14 of them, um, a couple uh, facial plastic people getting ready to retire, and they're putting some serious pressure on her. And I and I just said to her, you know, and you know, um, I know you know at the university they have something that is very much like what you have, um, because yeah. and without mentioning names, you, you know, um, one of my older dear friends and colleagues is retiring and, and he, he basically built this amazing private practice at the university. And I said to her, you know, it's, it's a, it's a whole different career path. If, yeah, if, really you, if you yeah. join, if she joined the ENT group, you'll never really mm-hmm. develop yourself as a true facial plastic surgeon. And I firmly yep. believe that I've seen it over and over and over, you know, yeah. talk to me about the, you know, most places now, most universities, even those who have a department, even those that support the facial plastic surgeon, most uh, joining other partners have a social media kind of anti, uh, you know, non, non-compete clause in there. In other words, you can't have your own social media. Um, that would have been, I mean, it's obviously that, that, that would have changed your path, mm-hmm. but um, how would you have handled yeah. that? How, I mean, what's the recommendation you would give to yeah. someone? Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, before I had this social media um, setup that's you know basically giving me 90% of my patients now, I, I would never have told you that that's even something that's possible or would happen that way. So, you know, it's obviously in my case, it's a little different because I wouldn't have known when I was missing. I would have just said, okay, I guess I can't have an Instagram. And I would have just kind of had a, you know, I would have gotten patients here and there from, from Louisville and never expanded my practice. I think I would have. I think regardless, you know, I, I know all the nurses at all the hospitals. They all see me doing rhinoplasty, you know, six noses a week. So, that, you know, eventually, eventually, I think the name in town, I would have gotten to where I am now um, anyway, eventually. Uh, but what really Instagram just put it global. I mean, that's really the big difference is now it's like, well, we don't care. I mean, I just had a clinic where I saw someone from Pennsylvania, uh, from Texas, from Florida, virtual consoles from uh from uk from london i mean so that that it made it um, kind of global which you can't do that without social media so i I think i probably you know if someone's in a situation where they can't have that i don't know that i would say they should just not take that position maybe uh 
Uh, I think that's probably too strong of a stance to say, okay, well, if I can't have my own Instagram, I'm not going to join this department. Uh, but, you know, I, what I'm, I, I've worked through this actually with two of my friends who are at other universities I can't say on this podcast, yeah, sure, but, uh, who were actually, they were told they can't have an Instagram. Uh, and it was just kind of a blanket policy. You know, it's not looking at specialty specific. It just says, okay, you're a university of whatever position, you can't have an Instagram. You can have your own personal, obviously, with your family and whatever, but you can't have one related to your practice. Uh, so there was two, two of my really good friends that had that. One of them uh, has worked for years with these guys, and on it, he actually used my page, for better or worse, to kind of say, hey, look, there's other people who do this. And they kind of made, you know, it sounds like almost an exception because they said, hey, this is going to benefit him. It's going to benefit his residents, his department. Uh, it really is not just to show, you know, show off the picture. It's really to help build a practice. Uh, and it's more important for our specialty than I think literally any other specialty in medicine. I mean, even the, the body guys, I mean, their pages are important, but I, I still think that the, the us face specialists, it's, it's another level of importance. I mean, patients don't trust their face with just anybody. Uh, so I think that they, uh, I know that he now has his own page. Uh, it, but they'd also said, you know, you can't put that you're our part of our department it has to mm-hmm. kind of be like he's on his own. So it, I think it really, I think you are correct that most places it would be very hard to replicate that. Oh, it is. Uh, I mean, I got to tell you, uh, I'm, sure. I'm, I'm hearing this from everybody there, you know, any practice people are joining, um, have a social media clause because, yeah. you know, it's easy. It's so easy to just jump out and go across the street. I mean, uh-huh. it wouldn't even affect you if you left right now. Yep. It would not affect no, your practice. Yeah, it would have zero, zero um, effect, yeah. So how do you, I got a question. So how do you, how are you able to get even a private hospital to get them to keep the OR, you know, running? Because I'm sure you're running late nights. Yeah. Yeah. So that was another issue um, with the, the university was they, they just, you know, it, it's a, it's a pretty big hospital. We're, we're the only show in town. I mean, we're a very, we're a level one trauma center, transplant center. I mean, it's a, it's, we're, it's a big city here. Uh, they just didn't have the OR capacity for what I do for a living. They were dealing with mostly life and limb kind of stuff. So once I found this hospital, they have twice as many ORs. Uh, and they are, you know, a lot of these patients are paying them a lot of money. Uh, it's a spine hospital. So they're very well funded because they, you know, make a lot of money off of spine cases. Uh, but honestly, I think they, I mean, it's, unless they're just pretending when I talked to the CEO and the CFO and the OR manager, uh, they look at us as the, the customer and they say, well, you're, I mean, they see we're bringing, I mean, I'm, uh, the spine guys will always win. I mean, those spine cases, those patients are in the hospital for a week. They have 5,000 MRIs. I mean, the amount of money that these hospitals mm-hmm. make on spine surgeons, oh, we can't just, compete with that. It's, as, insane. As out, it's it, insane. It's insane. Yeah. So as outpatient surgeons, we'll never compete with that, nor do I want to. But but as far as outpatient, you know, in the plastics world at that hospital, nobody is coming even close to the volume that I'm doing there. So, you know, they make a lot of money off my cases. And, and I think that they, uh, they're happy to, and again, unless they're, they're, they're not, you know, they're just acting. They seem like they're very appreciative that we're there when we're there, which is why I love going there. They're just happy that we're, they know that I have a choice. I can go to three other hospitals in Louisville. I mean, there's three other places that I could build, build a practice. Uh, my own university being one of them. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, again, it's kind of an interesting setup that I do most of my, 98% of my surgery, not at my university. Uh, so it's, um, mm-hmm. but it's, it's just the, 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 the service is amazing. They have, I have a scrub tech and a circulator that do all my cases and have, have done them for three years. Uh, I don't have to do any, I mean, they mix all of my local, my TXA, my fresh epi. They have all of my instruments, uh, completely set up before every case. I don't have to speak a word during the surgery. Uh, Leah, my scrub tech puts the instrument in my hand before I even know I need it yet. 
Uh, I mean, she could probably do a revision on plastic herself. Uh, she, I mean, she's 24 years old. So, uh, so you know, it's I, I have spent years building this practice to where it is now. Uh, and they also buy me the best equipment. I mean, if I need a new rasp or a handsaw or micro osteotome, uh, I text Karen in the, in the SPD sterile processing department, and two weeks later, it's in my set. Yeah. So yeah. it's I'm very fortunate, and it's just from building relationships and just doing good work there. I think they realize yeah. that we're doing something special there. Uh, and taking really good care of patients. And I think they kind of all have buy-in in this process and they all follow my Instagram. It's kind of funny. They all see the stuff I post and they saw those patients when they came in. So it's kind of a fun thing that we're all doing together sure. there. So two more questions. I'm going to let you go because I know you get you got to get home to your family. One question is, so um, how do you handle, you know, someone's coming, uh, you know, a very difficult revision from, you know, five, six states away uh, as a virtual consult? Because, don't you yeah. feel like you really need to see them in person to yes, finalize a plan? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So that's a that's a really good question. So the first thing I'll say is, um, it's the virtual consoles have a they have a place, I think, in rhinoplasty. Uh, I think they're less effective than you know maybe facelift consults or breast or whatever else people are doing. Uh, but yeah, for, you know, rhinoplasty is very much I need to touch, feel, look inside your nose, etc. So, but you know, it's just it's just a part of our world world now. I mean, that's really you have to kind of take you have to you know take part in it uh because a lot of patients they at least want to talk to you a little bit before they decide to come see you but my policy is i need to see you before surgery now in the beginning when i didn't when this is not that long ago i mean literally just eight months ago nine months ago i would say well you know i really want you to come and see me in person like months before your surgery like as a whole separate console yeah it's free obviously we're not gonna charge you whatever but that's because I was I was seeing maybe three revision consults a week, and they weren't they were like maybe a state one state away, two states away. It's like okay, well you can make the trip from Pittsburgh or whatever. But as it has gone farther and farther, the distance of people con- you know contact me, you can't really ask somebody to fly from Saudi Arabia to see right. you as a separate consult. So what I tell them is this: I say, listen, no matter what you show up here with, I can deal with it. I mean, if you have a force three centimeter septal perforation, I could probably close it. Uh, so I'm very comfortable with my ability to deal with whatever I'm going to see when they walk in my clinic the day before surgery. Uh, but you so see, so you see him the day before I see him the day before. So I tell them you cannot show up and meet me in pre-op. There are people, uh, in, I mean, there's several guys even in, in, up in the city, you know, New York city that, I mean, they'll meet people the morning of surgery at the pre-op bay. To me, I, that's that just seems a little crazy. I, and as a patient, I think that would be wildly uncomfortable to be I, like, okay, I just met I this agree. guy. Yeah, yeah. And now let's put the let's put the verse in and roll back to the OR. I can't imagine as a patient going through that. Uh, so for me, I say you know you need to fly in one to one to two days before surgery. Even if it's a Monday surgery, I'll see you on Sunday. I don't care. I live five minutes from my practice, from my office. I have an office out in the suburbs. So I basically say I'll come in on Sunday night. I'll, you know, we'll, we'll shake hands. I'll look inside your nose. I'll feel your nose. I have to have studio pictures, obviously, before I ever go to the OR. Uh, so I take good studio pictures. And whatever, if I look in their nose and they have a septal perf or their septum's broken in half, okay, we're taking rib. We're going to replace your septum. So so I tell them, hey, you, I, may, I may find anything in there, and we may have to change your surgery time and whatever, and they're, they're cool with it. I haven't really had any issues that got it i I mean it makes sense and then one final question what was you know what was would you consider your kind of inflection point where your you know your practice distant practice kind of took off with instagram and what what do you you attribute that to because it doesn't just happen no yeah it's true well i would say there's two there's two major inflection points in my practice the first one was covid so i really i'll look back on my my practice at least my academic practice 
as pre-COVID and post-COVID. I know, I know a lot of people in our life, you know, a lot of things in our life will be kind of, you know, time stamped by that, that, um, you know, pandemic yeah. obviously, but it's a really weird thing. I was, I basically had just left the VA because my practice was getting so busy. And then two weeks later we get a notice that no more OR, no more elective cases. So here I am, you know, just gave up my, my VA position. I have, I, I'm only doing trauma, which, you know, I, I still had some skin cancer and trauma to do. I was still operating uh, probably at average level or whatever, but, but it was concern, you know, concerning. Okay, what am I going to do now? I just did all this stuff, made all these decisions based off this. Uh, so I would say that was the first thing. But what, you know, we, as we all know very well now is plastic and facial plastic surgeons, COVID has led to an explosion of plastic surgery, uh, especially facial plastic surgery, because everyone's on Zoom all day and whatever. So it led to just, I think, more people around the world looking into getting facial plastic surgery. And what I did during that time was really get my pictures together. I mean, I spent a lot of time because I had, you know, I'd be done at noon on a Friday. I haven't been done on a noon Friday in a long time. Uh, and I would say, hey, I'm going to spend three hours just, just keep making some good before and afters and posting them here and there on Instagram. So I really, the COVID basically allowed me to have time to start focusing on my Instagram. Uh, but it, you know, I think what really, when you get past, there's some number, I don't know what it was about, when you get past like a certain number of followers, your posts start to get seen by more. They start to make it onto the, you know, the, the front page, whatever that front page is. Uh, and it's, and then again, it's a community where people all talk to each other. So if you do good work and you show it and patients leave you good Google reviews, that's another big thing we didn't talk about. Uh, I mean, we, we getting, we should talk about that. Actually getting good reviews we'll talk is about huge. It, sure. Yeah. It's huge. I, I, I know you, you do a really good job of keeping metrics. I remember you had, you know, you kind of kept, you know, you're, you're keeping an eye on this and you have to, this is what you do for them. This is a consumer market. Well, this we were, you know what, when you were, right? when you were with us, we were at our infancy. I mean, things have changed dramatically yeah. since oh, we have sure, been yeah. here. Um, you know, and yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I can't believe what we're getting off the internet and, and we're swamped. Uh, but, yeah. but, uh, but I, we, I didn't honestly, you know, I didn't, I didn't pay attention to it at, at all. And, I was yeah. quite frankly complacent, um, sure, yeah. but I have an obligation to the rest of the people that I work with now. So, but anyway, go yeah. ahead. So, so talk no, I mean, it's, 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 it's the new, the, the reviews are huge. So, so what I would say is I don't have anything on real self. I think I maybe have an account. I'm not even sure to be honest with you. I think maybe I made it when I was a fellow and I never posted anything or even put anything in there as far as information about me. I don't care about real self. So, you know, we talked about this when I was a fellow. I remember vividly actually in OR1, uh, you know, real self, uh, I don't want to talk a lot about it, but I mean, it's just, there, there's yeah. some, I just, I don't it like it as a, as a platform. I get it. Yeah. I don't like it as a platform. So it's an echo chamber. It's, you know, there's some sketchy stuff that I've heard that goes on there as far as reviews and stuff. So to me, it's just, it's impure is the way I would kind of word it. There's only one, and this is, again, this is me being opinionated. There's only one review platform that counts and it's Google. And the reason why is, you can't cheat Google. Nobody can. If you try to get someone to write a review in your office, it will block it because it will see that their IP address is linked to your, ge your geographic location. And they'll say, oh, this person is writing it in his office. He's probably getting them to do it there. Uh, so how do you get them? I mean, we, we have our strategy, but how, yeah. how do you get it? It's not yeah, easy. You, you know, man, people I, I say, have, I, have, yeah. I mean, it, it's, well, this is, I, and I, this is actually the most common question I get on Instagram is how do you have 195 star reviews in three and a half years? People think it's fake. They think that we're making it up. They think it's like, oh, he must have found some way to cheat Google. You can't cheat Google. It's impossible. Uh, if anything, Google's annoyingly, they'll block reviews if it just sounds too good. They'll say, oh, no, that, that just there's too many superlatives. He's using too many words. We're going to block this review. I've had a lot of issues, actually, with that. But this is how I get this many reviews. All my patients have my cell phone number. 
everybody. My mandible fractures, my forehead flaps, my facelift, rhinoplasty, all of them. They basically what I do is I text everybody the night of surgery and say, How you doing? Everything okay? You know, any questions, blah blah blah. Uh, and I say, yeah, we're good. You know, she's bleeding, whatever we expect that. Uh, and through that first week period, people text me with all kinds of the same questions everybody has. And is my tip of my nose supposed to be red? I just got that while we're talking. Uh, you know, why is one side more bruised? Whatever. You know, all the questions that people are sitting at home freaking out about during the recovery. And I say, yeah, that's normal. That's totally fine. Not a big deal. So the, the key is not when I, the review is not, I don't ask for it when I ask for it. I've started kind of building this relationship, obviously, the minute I did surgery, honestly, even before I did the surgery. But people know that they can access me and ask me questions very easily. And honestly, the first – when I tell people everyone has my cell phone, they flip out. They say, what are you talking – you give your mandible fracture patient your cell phone number? If anything, what I would tell you is people annoyingly don't use it, meaning they'll call my office and ask a question that I would have been able to text them in five seconds – and they called Gabby, my patient care coordinator, and then she has to call me and say, "Hey, Mr. John Smith is asking if his, you know, if his still have supposed to have bleeding three days later." Now, you know, so it's just this circle that comes back to me. Then I got to text him and say, "Hey, yeah, it's normal. Uh, just text me next time." So people are almost scared to use it because they don't want to bother me. I have. I can really tell you, in all my years, patient. yeah, in all my years, I call people with my cell phone. I don't block it. And in all my years, yeah, I think I, mean, I had I had one patient that I, you know, I. I had to talk to say, listen, you can't just call me. Sure. But, yeah. but, uh, oh, yeah. I, yeah. I'm getting, I'm sure I'm going to have those coming my way. I have no doubt about it. So, but nowadays, I mean, with iPhones, especially, you can block someone in five seconds. It's so easy to block a number now with, yeah. mod, with you know, modern iPhones. So they have my cell phone. I text them frequently. How are you doing? So basically, my kind of general idea is okay, I see them for a couple of weeks and I say, okay, things are looking good. You're healing well. And then I, I send them their pictures from surgery always. I say, here's even the forehead package. I send them pictures of their whole surgery. And then I say, hey, do you mind leaving a Google review? If you really appreciate it, it helps my practice grow. And I can tell you that, I mean, truly, probably over 50% of them leave me a Google review. And, at, at least 50%. It's a huge number. And you know something um, interesting? Because it, it, in the beat, so we, we, we keep track of who gets the most Google reviews, right? And it's a lot easier for a slaughter because he's doing a lot of reconstructive stuff because those patients are so sure. grateful. If someone writes yeah. a check for $20,000 for a facelift, they're, yeah. they're, you know, even though they're right, they're extremely grateful, they're less likely to, yeah. but, you know, we, we work it and we get them. But, um, well, but, but, I mean, I think it's a different population too. There, you know, I, I, I'm dealing with a much younger population than the aging face population. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. obviously age, age matching going on. So, so, you know, I think by nature, people who do more aging face are going to have a harder time because you're dealing with people who are not on Instagram and not yeah, on people leaving reviews. Uh, I, I'm dealing with a lot of 35, 40, 25 year old patients. Uh, and I have, I built a quick link. So it's actually, I have it saved in my notepad from my MacBook. So I can just text it to them directly. Yeah. It's actually just a button they click on their phone and it takes them right to this. They don't have to go to anywhere. They just type it in. It's yeah. a very, we, we give them an easy button to do it. Uh, so um, I think by then they, they appreciate how much in contact I've been yeah. and they feel kind of like, Hey, I, I'm kind of obligated. This guy's done a lot of work and he's taking good care of me and I can leave him a five second review. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Uh, so I, make- I think that is a huge way to build your practice. Well, huge and way. you know, that's what Amazon, Amazon does. They make everything easy. So listen, yeah. I have to let you go because you've been, you've given me sure. 50 generous minutes and I know you got a family at yeah. home and two little girls that are probably in bed yeah. by now, but um, really, really enjoy talking to you, Ziad, and you know, yeah, uh, wish you sure. wish you the world of success. I know you're, you're yeah. crushing it, so um, it was really nice appreciate to catch it. up. Yes, yes, thank you for having me on. All I right, thanks again. Yeah. Yeah. Bye.